now we bring you Progressive Voices from America's Heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you the rundown on today's lineup, uh, let's take a second to thank a couple of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, full service grocery store. It's locally owned and it's just west of downtown Des Moines on ML King Boulevard. Gateway's Cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some distanced dining tables and you can also order using Gateway's takeout program. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic where Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for all creatures, great and small, as I like to say. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by giving Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. All right, hey, later in the program, we're gonna be talking with two physicians with Physicians for Social Responsibility about the nuclear treaty on the proliferation of, sorry, the prohibition of nuclear weapons. That's coming up for renewal next week. We'll also be talking with architect Mark Klipsham about uh, the confluence of economics and health and the crisis that that involves. We'll be talking with an author, Ross Benes, about uh, a book, Rural Rebellion, um, yeah, well, Nebraska was not always a Republican stronghold. We're going to talk with uh, Ross about that. And then finally, Kathy Burns is going to join us for our January Garden Question and Answer session. But first, right now, I want to welcome to the program Joel Brown, a former Democratic lawmaker and a Trump voter. Joel and I did not serve together. Uh, I got elected the same year he got beat. Uh, <laughs> sorry to have to remind you, Joel. Um, <laughs> anyway, Tell us a bit about your background. You were a Democratic lawmaker back in what, 88, 90? Uh, yeah, I elected in 88, reelected in 90, and then um, lost after redistricting. It ended up in a seven-way primary and, and um, moved into a new district. My old district, my, my only really Democratic county got chopped off and put in with another Democratic lawmaker. And, but you, but you, were, you represented four rural Iowa counties back then. Uh, yeah, three and a half, roughly. Yeah, it was um, Lucas, Monroe, Wayne, and then a chunk of Clark. Um, what what issues, uh, What I mean, something drives everyone. What are the issues that drive your passion? I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, I guess I would have, I would have called myself a populist. I mean, I, it, 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 what really interested me were the human kind of elements of, of politics. I mean, we talked about that a little bit um, the other day. I mean, you know, I kind of, I voted along with the environmental group of legislators, but it was never something that really interested me. I was, I was on the Human Services um, Appropriation Subcommittee, the Human, Re Human Services Committee, um, the Labor Committee. You know, and those were and those were really the things that that interested me. You know, I know, um, I know economics. You say were, were important, but also I know I believe you also have a pretty strong libertarian streak. I I always have. Yeah, I would say, but I think that actually kind of goes along with populism. There's a certain element, you know, in in I think populist politics of you know leave me alone, and which is kind of kind of, kind of you know it, it's it's I I don't believe in coercion. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, and obviously that you can't make that as a total blanket statement because there are certain circumstances where that's necessary, but in general, I don't believe in, in coercion as a way 
of accomplishing policy goals. Government. So it's it, right. government. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, clearly coercion, you know, I mean, we, somebody's got to pay for the military, whether you want to or not. You know? so I guess, I guess some people might say Trump was a populist, but uh, I, I think a lot of us might not see him that way. Well, why, did, why, why did you vote for Trump? Let's go back to 2016. You voted for him first in 2016. I know you said you thought you might vote for a libertarian or other third party candidate, but yeah. Trump. Why did you end up with Trump in 2016? Um, I would say in 2016, it was more just... I would say more, more real intense dislike of Hillary Clinton than anything else. It, it wasn't, I had no real hopes for him. Um, he actually turned out to govern better than I would have expected. Um, what way was he better than you expected? Oh, I don't know. I mean, he actually kind of made an effort, I think, to do what he said he was going to do. I mean, it, successfully or not, I mean, it's, it's, he actually tried, which is sort of, a novelty, you know, in national politics at this point. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, clearly, you know, he, he, I mean, I think we talked about NAFTA the other day, and I don't think that his revision of NAFTA was all that great, but he made the attempt. I mean, and I, I'm actually a supporter of tariffs. Um, you know, I think that, you know, doing those kind of things to protect the domestic economy is important. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, and he made a lot of inroads in that. I mean, I think trying to protect some of the, you know, the, the, the smokestack industry. Did, did, um, did he actually, I mean, he talked about repealing NAFTA, and that certainly appealed to a lot of uh, working class people. Uh, maybe it didn't appeal, appeal to the farm base as much. I don't know. But, the, um, yeah. but a lot of union members um, said, hey, yeah, we want to repeal NAFTA. We don't want the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We don't want a lot of these so-called free trade agreements that are, mm -hmm. that are not fair to working people, not fair to our country. Did Trump really make a difference? Or was it just kind of window dressing? Oh, I mean, I think there was, I think it was a mixture. I do think that he, you know, he, as I said, you know, he did actually push through some, some tariffs. Um, I mean, I think as far as NAFTA goes, it was, eh, you know, I, it's, but I do, you know, I do, I am not a globalist. Um, you know, I think that, that, you know, for most people, for, you know, most, especially working people, especially people, you know, that are blue collar, um, the domestic economy is really important. And, and protecting the domestic economy is, is more important than, than cheap plastics. But, but has Trump really been good for small business? I mean, you, we talk about, you know, de, de, I mean, you're, you, you believe in decentralization. You believe in a, a local economy, really focusing on supporting a local economy. Has mm -hmm. Trump done anything for, local, for the local, local business community? Or has it more been about the big guys that have benefited from tax cuts and whatnot? Well, I don't know. I mean, as far as small business, I, I that I'm not I'm not sure. I, I I would say that he's been particularly interested in it. Um, economy did improve, and I think that sort of benefits everybody. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just that's the problem. I don't think anybody is terribly interested in small businesses. I don't think any of the policies that are being pushed by either party at the national level are 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 going to bring back Main Street you know, or, or have any desire to bring back Main Street. So you, you've left the Democratic Party, but it's not like you're all that excited about the alternative. 
Oh, no, no, I'm still registered as a Democrat. I mean, and only because I just don't know what else to do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm not a libertarian. I don't. Um, a, lot, a lot of what you believe in sounds very libertarian. What's wrong with the Libertarian Party? I, I mean, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm certainly a social libertarian. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, you know, fundamentally agree with the kind of the atomization of the individual that that, that, that philosophy, you know, taken to its logical conclusion brings. I mean, I don't, I think that we're connected to each other. And I think that, that, that you know, we're part of a community and that being part of that community is, is an important part of being human. So were there you know, any, I don't individuals as, as totally autonomous. Okay. Were there any Democrats running for president in 2020 you could have supported if they'd won the primary? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I like Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know a lot about her. I mean, I think on policy, she's probably, you know, fairly traditional liberal, but she, you know, does not hate her, hate the other side. I mean, and that's, that's, you know, for me, that's a big thing, because I think we're at the point where, you know, it's, it's so easy to demonize the other side, and it's being done on such an incredible scale that when you get somebody out there who's, you know, saying we need to talk, and, and, you know, it's, she's kind of what I would say is you know my view of a traditional liberal i mean it's i the first speech that i ever gave um, on the floor of the house was in support of a bill that um, was was designed to extend first amendment protection to student newspapers and i mean that seems like nothing but i for me you know that is important i mean i think that those you know the first amendment you know the freedom of speech freedom of assembly are absolutes and they have to be absolutes in order to have a free society and i don't see much in the modern democratic party certainly at the national level that even supports that you know whereas i mean i do think she does i mean i hear you know so, some, speaking of uh, and speaking of gabbard's uh, propensity not to demonize the opposition what do you think about what happened at the u.s capitol on january 6th where I the think opposition was, was not only demonized but threatened with uh with hanging uh, with uh, who knows yeah. what's going to happen? It was unfortunate. I mean, it was, I don't support violence. I don't support threats, regardless of who's doing them. I mean, I was, you know, the thing that really moved me to come out and scrum this, this year, you know, vocally, which I really hadn't done before, um, was, was, was the violence last summer, the rioting and the burning. And, and I, I don't support it regardless of who's doing it. Right. So, no. uh, yeah, and again, regarding the January 6th um, riots at the U.S. Capitol, uh, conventional opinion, and it's, it's a pretty strong factually supported opinion, is that Donald Trump um, pretty much orchestrated or at least helped uh, inspire and, and, uh, and, um, and encourage that, that riot. Would you agree with that opinion or do you have, see it differently? Oh, I don't agree with that. No, I don't, I don't see that at all. I mean, I don't, I don't see anything in his remarks, you know, inciting people to violence. I mean, he's calling for peaceful. I mean, he certainly was, you know, he certainly was, you know, backing the, the gathering. I mean, it's, you know, and, and I think at this point, you know, you know, we're kind of past the point where, where, let me rephrase that. I mean, I think there's no doubt that he was, he was supporting the gathering. I, I see absolutely nothing. I've heard absolutely nothing 
in terms of a direct quote that would, you know, would indicate that he was advocating violence. He's never advocated violence. The whole, you know, kind of that whole MAGA movement has never been violent. You know, they show up and they're polite to the police. So uh, to, to claim that Trump has um, not uh, encouraged violence is a bit of a stretch, Joel, no? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen any direct quotes from him that that are, you know, advocating violence. I mean, I think that that, you know, his absolute certainty that the election was stolen and communicating that to people, you know, kind of reached the point where it was, you know, it was definitely counterproductive. I mean, I there's not any doubt in my mind that there was I mean, there are just so many statistical anomalies in kind of key counties that it's just, there's clearly, there were shenanigans, I, I would say. And I mean, I don't think there's any doubt, but. There's a lot of Republican election officials who were saying, no, everything went fine in my state. Yeah, and I think some of them did. I mean, and I, you know, I just think it was in particular, I mean, I didn't really want to get into that, but, but yeah, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> you can see statistical anomalies. You can look at places like Fulton County where you know the results are just so out of proportion to to the rest of the you know rest of the state i'm not saying that that's that that the election was stolen i'm saying that you know there's certainly grounds for looking at this election and saying you know there was there was probably a lot of fraud going on um and i you know even and it, it makes sense i mean it's it's I, and again, it kind of comes back to the whole, you know, the whole, you know, balkanization of our political process. If you really believe Trump is Hitler, I mean, seriously, if you really believe he's he's the new Hitler and that he's trying to, you know, impose fascism on the country, you know, stuffing a few ballots is not, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense to do it. I mean, I, I don't believe that that the end justifies the means, but I do understand that kind of thinking. I mean, that said, I mean, what I do think is that his, you know, repeated assertions that it was absolutely still, he won in a landslide, you know, over and over again, have not been helpful to, you know, to, to not kind true. of the true, process. I mean, they needed to be quiet. Yeah, neither true nor helpful. Yeah, I mean, they, Right. No, they needed to go to court if they were going to go to court and not say anything, you know, in terms of whipping up the, the his political base. Hey, I got to run to a break, Joel. I, I, I do want to talk with you. Well, I, I'll probably uh, write about this in our blog. I know we've talked about the media sources you, you, knew, you use to get your news from. We've talked a little bit about climate change. And so folks who are listening on the program here, we'll, we'll discuss that on the blog that I'll put out uh, this coming week. Uh, we've been talking with Joel Brown, a former... Iowa Democratic uh, lawmaker from uh, rural Iowa, who uh, is a, a pretty strong libertarian, but not a member of the Libertarian Party. He's still a Democrat, but he did vote for Donald Trump in 2016, 2020. And I still love him as a friend and a neighbor. So uh, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. Thank you, it was fun. All right, hey folks, when we come back, uh, Drs. David Drake and Maureen McHugh with Physicians for Social Responsibility gonna join us to talk about the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, 
local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Some voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our local nonprofit uh, partners in this effort. Thanks to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to fight climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Uh, Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful and nonviolent means to push for change. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Uh, local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents. You can get more information about the, uh, the effort at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Artie, welcome back to the program. Um, with me now are two of Iowa's um, uh, leaders in the uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, this is an organization of international renown that has a very strong presence here in Iowa. And with me are uh, David Drake. Uh, um, uh, David, uh, David and I go way back. He's a psychiatrist in private practice in Des Moines, also an adjunct professor in psychiatry at Des Moines University. Um, Dr. Maureen McHugh is uh, very active with the Global Health Initiative at the University of Iowa and also the Center for Human Rights. Uh, Maureen and David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. And again, this is um, thanks for having us. This is Martin Luther King Day week, and uh, I think it's uh, fairly significant that we're discussing an issue as critical as nuclear proliferation. Not often associated with Martin Luther King, but uh, Maureen, I believe that uh, people ought to be aware that there is a strong connection there. There is indeed, and we do too often forget it. Um, he was an anti-war, uh, anti-imperialist, internationalist whose views on American power really promoted international solidarity and the indivisibility of peace. For our purposes today, I'm absolutely certain MLK would be exhorting us all to help in the process of prohibiting nuclear weapons because he himself spoke very strongly, particularly during his acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, where he famously said, uh, about or talked about how uh, nations are not reducing but rather increasing their arsenals of weapons of mass destruction and that uh, things are not going at all in the right direction which has continued since his time and um, he has has talked in, in detail and without going into all the quotes I have to say that 57 years later 
many of the impediments to the achievement of so many of his dreams persist. And among them, of course, being economic injustice and racial discrimination, which we're all talking about, but sure. also the threat of nuclear war. And the expense and, of the expense of war, the expense of yes. preparation for nuclear war robs resources that should be used, could be used to to create a much more equitable society. Uh, you know, and, and even as um, even as a lot of us who are concerned about the ex existential threat of climate change see more moment, momentum toward realizing we've got to do something. I think this seems to be this, uh, this forgotten existential threat of uh, nuclear war. And I, this is a really important moment, I think, to begin to think about why that is, uh, needs to be front and center. And partly because of the uh, treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, uh, that is coming up, uh, that, that is basically taking effect this week. And David, I know you and your wife, Claire, went to the United Nations a few years back to lobby on behalf of that treaty. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. We did, and I wrote about that in the Des Moines Register uh, back, uh, when was that, in November. Um, in 2016, Claire and I joined um, PSR national staff and uh, other uh, organizations of civil society nationally and internationally to um, lobby on the behalf of people who would like to see um, the abolishment of uh, nuclear weapons throughout our world. And it was the Treaty and Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was adopted um, by the United Nations on July 7th. And- um, This year. Kinda, yeah. Last week. <laughs> well, no, I'm sorry. It was I, it was adopted, I'm talking about uh, July 7th, 2017. Oh, okay. And then, then it was uh, ratified um, later. Sorry. That was October 24th, 2020. And is kinda the US, US a signatory? No, no nuclear powers signed on to it. Um, as of, uh, I think in the last couple of weeks, uh, Maureen can uh, give more update on this. There are 51 signatures, as far as I know. None um, of them are nuclear powers. None. Oh. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's 55 it, signatories. That's what put it into position to go into force next week, this week. Okay. And the, the 50th happened uh, on October 24th. Um, and th this is a significant week overall with that as well. But Martin Luther King Day with the uh, uh, inauguration of Biden and Kamala Harris, um, but also the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons goes into effect on Friday, January 22nd for those countries that signed on to it. Uh, but basically, um, it makes it um, uh, illegal to, uh, to possess, to develop, to have on your, uh, your country land, numerous things that basically have anything to do with nuclear weapons. So it doesn't make it illegal and the countries that didn't sign on it, but this is a moral step forward to put pressure on other countries as well. But again, none of, the, none, of the current, none of the current nuclear powers have signed on yet. That's correct. Okay, is there any hope that the US might under a new administration? Maureen, you the, want hope, to that? the hope is that um, we will incrementally move towards it. And part of our efforts, particularly, like I said, today on MLK Day, just before inauguration, just before it goes into force, is to bring the awareness to people of A, the waste of resources, the waste of financial resources, the waste of intellectual resources, all of which could be put to resolving many of the other concerns that we have. But there's also been in the last week, if, if you noticed, people got very worried about the fact that one unhinged person who was the president of our country 
could have launched a nuclear weapon, could have actually initiated a nuclear exchange. So there is effort of, uh, in this country to get rid of that uh, um, provision right now is to stop the sole authority. Other efforts are going on along uh, with that to uh, also eliminate some of the other elements that would lead to nuclear war and make it harder and harder. No first use. This country under Trump did not agree to no first use. Uh, if we scale it back and say we would not use them except in defense, that's another way to begin to lower now, the bar. There's another there's another treaty that uh, that needs to be referenced as well. That's the START treaty. That's specifically yes. with Russia, and that expires soon. Yes. And the START treaty has been a significant way. Well, I, I can't. I mean, who knows why we have not had a nuclear war yet? This lots. Of Lots of reasons luck. as to why it could just be luck. luck. I don't know, but um, but the START treaty, good idea. It puts the two leading nuclear powers into negotiation, into dialogue, into restrictions. Now that's going to be coming up again, right? Am I next correct? month? Next yes. month. Yeah. So what what happens? Uh, what what's the what's the prognosis, David, for some action on renewing the START treaty? Maureen, I'm going to pass that on, on to you. Uh, uh, Biden, as you know. Um, it follows in Obama's footsteps and um, has pledged to be even more forceful in addressing this threat. He is um, planning to get back into the Iran deal. He is planning to move uh, back uh, to supporting the uh, New START. He's uh, promised to look at uh, a lot of the elements under our nuclear posture review. So we are hoping, in fact, that whether or not the U.S. would just sign on to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear uh, Weapons, he would at least begin to roll things back by addressing the treaties Good. that okay. are, are going out. So David, back to the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, and back to you, the, um, again, there, there, are, there are nations, what, 55, I guess, nations around the world that have signed on. What, um, in what, to what extent can that treaty be used to put pressure on the nuclear nations or the would-be nuclear nations, Iran, Korea, North Korea? What, to what extent can that be helpful to kind of push those who already have nuclear weapons and those who are wanting nuclear weapons to... Well, to my, my hope is, I mean, this, this is a stepping stone, but I want to quote uh, the woman I'm married to, Claire Cumby Drake, who in uh, Des Moines Register in December of 2016 wrote that the people of the United States must seize this historic moment to raise our voices and create the political will to lead the way negotiating for a complete elimination of nuclear weapons. And something tied in with this that uh, Maureen was talking about earlier, she talked about uh, uh, a little bit about the Back from the Brink campaign, which National PSR has signed on to in a number of our chapters. The Back from the Brink campaign was endorsed by our own mayor, Frank County, in a city council meeting and a special proclamation that uh, local peace activists got together and put forward. But Back from the Brink campaign is, for, is five ideas and prospects. One is the no first use of the nuclear weapons. Two is what Marine was talking about and the unchecked presidential authority to launch. Number three, to take US weapons off high trigger alert, which are the land-based missile symptoms, systems that we have. Number four, to cancel the program to build enhanced nuclear weapons, which is very scary. Number five, to pursue worldwide agreement to abolish nuclear weapons. 
Um, this is uh, this is so important. And Beatrice Finn, with with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in nineteen uh, in twenty seventeen, said the story of nuclear weapons will have an ending. It's up to us what that ending will be. She says, "Will it be the end of nuclear weapons, or will it be the end of us?" And that is a really good note on which to end this conversation because that is uh, that is hopeful, and we need hope and we need action. And again, I'm. I'm I'm uh, encouraged that we might see some action on the part of this administration. And hopefully, whatever Biden and Harris can do can help pressure China and Russia and other nuclear powers to take action as well. Uh, David and Maureen, thank you so much for joining us. So folks, we've been talking with Dr. Maureen McHugh and Dr. David Drake with Physicians for Social Responsibility. When we come back, uh, architect Mark Clipsham is going to join us for a conversation about the intersection of economics and healthcare. Back in a minute with you here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Happy winter, everyone. Here we are in Des Moines, Iowa, bringing you some progressive voices that you might not hear on commercial radio elsewhere. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and I'd like to take a second to thank a couple of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a full-service grocery store. It's locally owned. It's just west of downtown Des Moines. Gateway's Cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some, uh, what do you call, distanced dining tables. And you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. Check it out, folks. Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, also located in downtown Des Moines. Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Uh, Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, and you can catch many of the performances on live stream. And the, the, uh, they've done a great job, too, of um, making their setup work for protecting visitors, musicians, and staff during the pandemic. Kathy and I were there the other night, and it felt very comfortable, and the music was great. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, joining me for this uh, conversation of the, uh, this segment of the program, Mark Clipsham. He's an architect and a builder, and he says he, quote, loves to solve, solve puzzles. And I don't think he means... Um, Puzzles where you put together pieces. I think he means things like uh, economics, um, well, and architecture as well. But um, to mark uh, compromise is a dirty word, and that that should be avoided with careful and extended thought. And well, so I want to say, let's see if we can uh, find some common ground in your unwillingness to compromise, Mark. 
<laughs> Welcome to the show. Hi, Ed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you think a lot about economics. And um, most recently, you were talking with me about the intersection of economics with our healthcare system. Where do you want to go with that? And, and agriculture. Um, more specifically would be the growth economy and why it's there and what it does, sort of the unintended consequences. Um, investment, I'm, I'm an investor. And so I have a, I have a very uh, sort of conflict of interest thing going on here. It's the only game in town. It's how retirement is set up and, uh, you know, your future, your kids' education, that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, it's it's kind of parasitical. Not kind of parasitical, it is. The only thing people, investors, add to the equation is money. They don't add labor, they don't add material, and yet they're going to draw out a bunch of income. But don't they also add ideas? Yeah, board of directors and things like that usually add ideas, but they're how to make more profit at any cost. <laughs> okay. That's the problem. Right. So here in Iowa, we're an agricultural commodity-driven economy. If you are going to grow your economy, that means you have to consume more. Right. And, so, and if you're so a farmer, we, you're supposed to increase yields. Right. Okay. So... I don't know. We've got excess pork bellies. What are we going to do with them? Oh well, let's let's make bratwurst really cool, and bacon. Let's let's have a cult around bacon and ribs. You know what? They're delicious. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're the reason eighty to ninety percent of the people are in the waiting room at the clinic I go to. Between bad diet and lack of exercise, which is also a consumer-driven thing, you know watching football on TV, uh, going to concerts, going out to bars, eating at restaurants. No, Mark, Mark now, now you, can, you can do some of those things and still exercise and still eat correctly, yeah. you know, eat a balanced diet. Um, but I, I, get, I, I mean, I get what you're saying about the growth economy. Um, nothing can continue to grow endlessly. Uh, that, that, just, that defies all basic laws of biology and ecology. You can't math, just continue. Math, math for that matter. You look at and curve, math, yes. <laughs> it starts out kind of, you know, horizontal, and then it goes to about a 45 degree, and then it ends up straight up. And I agree with you on that, but I, again, I, I would say, okay, so yeah, um, the, the way we, for example, the way we're producing pork in Iowa, it's unsustainable. And more and more of that pork is for export. And um, well, yeah. Look, 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 look around, like I said, I go to the clinic. I've talked this about my doctor. I got like 89% of the people who come in here are here for a uh, bad diet, lack of exercise. He goes, yep. Well, when you have a growth economy and you have commodity, okay, so now I can produce more corn. I can raise more pigs and cattle and chicken. Well, I got to sell that to somebody. Uh, it's I don't care if it was potato chips, you know, or... It's usually very snacky foods that are very high profit value. Right. That's why they're marketed so heavily. Yeah, I mean, you, you can get the you can get a lot more uh, money if you sell a box of or a canister of Pringles potatoes than if you sell a bag of whole potatoes. Yes, if you go to the grocery and, store and, one of, and look, what, look what's for sale, 
Uh, 80% of the products in there are refined flours, they're sugars, they're high fat, they're low fiber. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, again, I, I, I agree that we have a system that is unsustainable. But how do you how do you convey that there's a mentality out there that you have to keep growing? I mean, I I've dealt with this when I've talked with city planners about urban sprawl. Well, you got to keep growing or you die, you know. And 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 I my my point is well, that sounds to me like the um, the the description of a cancer cell. <laughs> uh, well, you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're feeding you're feeding a monster. We 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 we've created a Frankenstein and and, and we can't control it anymore. I I puzzled with it was like how do you how do you leash the beast so i have investments mind you i'm investing in solar panels and mm, pot in canada and stuff like that uh green technologies organic foods things like that. i'm making money off of it but for those companies to give me my return they have to continually grow and to grow and make more profit the easiest way is to cut quality um, right. And, or wages. Uh, yeah. Or corners on corners on worker protection, corners on environmental protection. Exactly. And as as you grow more and more, there's more and more need for that to happen. So it's a oh, let's, let's 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 tie this all up with a big bow, Ed. OK. OK. So wouldn't it be neat? This is, I think, the basic assumption, which I think is absolutely false. All this is about happiness and health one would hope and yet it seems as we go on in this growth economy there is less health and less happiness there's more depression more suicides more health care problems okay so to me uh, I'll back up here first off a stable society uh, economy is what we used to have maybe a hundred years ago you know you went to work you you plowed your field, you did this, you sold some cows, you sold some corn, you fed your family, and you got up and did it again the next day, and things were okay. Uh, not enough now, because it's not just me. I got to take care of me, plus these people that invested in my farm, and they really want their returns. Yeah, so they're but- saying, hey, Mark, let's not do the cover crop this year. Let's go ahead and plant again. I go like, oh, okay, I guess I have to. You know, and let's not let's not weed by hand. Let's use pesticides and Roundup but, and this but, kind of stuff. But but the seeds the seeds of the un, unstable unstable economic model we currently are are becoming more and more aware of. They, those were sown, I mean, generations ago. Yes. Um, and even when even the the kind of the more idyllic model you describe, where people seem to be more satisfied with less. I mean, there was still always a hunger for more and more and more, whether it was, you know, uh, conquering more land in the U.S., taking more land away from Native peoples, um, you know, or even the case of... I, I think, once again, at the investor level, let's call it the 1% level, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw this out there, the Amish. I don't know, are they, are they in a growth economy? I mean... No, they're, they're, they're pretty stable. Well, there you go. Darn, and they're all miserable, right? Well, no. <laughs> well, wait a second, Ed. Come on, work with me here. They're, they're miserable. It's horrible. They couldn't have a worse life. Uh, people, they give them the opportunity to go out in the world, and, oh, yeah, they come back and stay on the farm because it's sane. <laughs> it is sane, Ed. So it's, it's a, a new phone every month or two, you know? Well, um, and how do we move from where we are now to maybe not all becoming Amish, 
but um, developing an economic system that values more than just the bottom line? Well, I have a weird idea. I know you do. Every idea you have, Mark, is weird. <laughs> you remember back in the 60s, Ed? Um, okay, you weren't born then. You're just a twinkle in your mom's eye. I got. But, uh, Dad's remember, eye, actually. Remember, remember the big concern was that, gosh, these hippies are just sitting around smoking pot. They're not going to do anything. All that was about not fueling the economy. And you're like, well, when I'm looking at our environment and our health, mental and physical, I'm going, like, actually, maybe that's not a bad idea. We don't need 50% of what we produce, if not 80%. And we just don't need it. That excess consumption ends up in the landfill, ends up as fat around our waist, ends up <laughs> as roadways to sprawling suburbs. Yeah. Ends up, ends up as climate change, if you want to put a finger to that. There you go. Yeah. So, really, we could work 20 hours a week, and, oh, what would we do with the other 20 hours? Maybe fix our own house. Maybe play with our kids. Maybe grow a garden. Uh, sit and think. What a weird yeah. idea. Well, and a lot of people are working more than 40 hours to make ends meet as well. I, I, it, yeah. it's a, it has to be, because the growth economy demands that. I got to get more out of my worker. I got to put less into them. I got to put less into my product. I got well, we've sort of maxed all that stuff out. And now would you pretty, would you would you agree, Mark, that it's not just the uh, it's not just corporate interests that are that are doing their part there to make life difficult? But I mean, again, and I, I'm not one of these people. I'm not an anti-government person. I believe government can be a part, not the answer, but a part of the solution. But to some extent, government has been co-opted by some of these corporate interests, and it's it's doing its part to make life more difficult for people who really would rather not work three jobs, who really would rather not uh, find themselves in such binds in so many levels. I hear, I hear people slam capitalism, and I say, you've never seen capitalism. Capitalism is the exchange of goods and services between two parties to mutual benefit. What happened to that? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mark, I got to run to a break. Um, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, we'll have you back on again to, to uh, you know, I'd like to try to tie this conversation into some specific things that are happening in our world. But uh, again, <laughs> we'll definitely have you back to do that in the future, okay? Absolutely. I would look forward to it. Folks, we've been talking with Mark Clipsham. He's an architect and a builder here in central Iowa. And uh, when he's not uh, deciding uh, tough questions around how to build stuff, he's deciding tough questions on how to fix a failed economy. Uh, back in a minute when Russ Bennis joins us, he's the author of Rural Rebellion. Talk with him soon here, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766.
Voices from America's Heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, support for this program comes from Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, and that's spelled H-O-Q, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carry-out. You can learn more at hawktable.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, joining me on the program now is Ross Benich. He's an award-winning author, three books under his belt. His most recent one is Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. He's also written for Rolling Stone, Esquire, Wall Street Journal, and 538. Ross, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on the program, Ed. So I am particularly intrigued by your book uh, because um, right now, well, this is the very start of a very intense project we're working on here in Iowa to interview 52 Iowa Trump voters, one voter every week. And, uh, you know, th there's several reasons that we're doing that. But one is that, uh, well, you know, rural Iowa used to be a much more bipartisan place. And my impression is that Nebraska used to be much more bipartisan as well. Not that long ago, too. I mean, even in the 90s and early 2000s, we were electing Democrats regularly. Nebraska's own Ben Nelson provided the final vote for Obamacare's passage. And that's obviously no longer the case. Now we send all Republicans to Congress, overwhelmingly. So, and you're from, what part of Nebraska are you from again? Right? I'm from the southeast part. It's a small town called Brainerd. Um, you know, it's about an hour from, from Lincoln and Omaha. Okay. And, uh, I mean, that is the, the less Republican part of the state. <laughs> well, those, those cities are, but my home county is 80% uh, okay. voted for Trump, so... But yeah, the, the round of Lincoln and Omaha is definitely the less, but it's, it's less red in a sea of red. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Pinkish. No, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to uh, share with people a quote from, uh, from the description of your book. Uh, At a time when social and political differences are too often portrayed in stark binary terms, and people in the Trump-supporting heartland are depicted in reductive, one-dimensional ways, uh, Bennett tells real-life stories to add depth and nuance to our understanding of rural Americans' attitudes. That's, uh, that's I, I can't wait to read it, uh, Ross. <laughs> but um, maybe uh, just, people relate very well to stories. So what are some of these stories? Share with us one of the stories that, uh, that, um, that uh, show that, you know, show that transition from less red to bright red. Well, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, you know, my brother is a Trump supporter, but he's also uh, valedictorian of his high school class, and he treats people, including the women in his life, tremendously well. And, uh, you know, he had a, a daughter as a, as a teenager, and he still was able to build a successful career, you know, despite uh, providing for a kid at such a young age. And I think so often, um, when you hear Trump supporter, they're, they're, portrayed as if it's like um, conspiracy theorists or they're minors or, you know, there's like, there's like four or five uh, stereotypes, but. Well, you also hear misogynist, which you're. Oh, misogynist, yeah. Not. And you also hear stupid, which uh, being a valedictorian, he's probably not stupid. And he, and he also disagrees with a lot of Trump's positions, even though he preferred him over Biden. 
I think that's something that also gets lost just because you vote for someone doesn't mean you support everything. Uh, like my brother uh, wants to make it easier for people to come into this country for, for mm -hmm. immigrants. He, he supports immigration reform, obviously disagrees with, with Trump's hardline stance on that. How does he, uh, he? How does he feel about the act actions at the uh, the U.S. Capitol on January? You know, I, I'm sure he condemns them. I haven't talked to him about that because that was pretty recent. Um, I can't see him supporting mm. that whatsoever. Uh, he he's um, much more mild mannered and rational than the yeah. people who stormed the Capitol. And it sounds like you interviewed a lot of um, a lot of prominent uh, political figures uh, in putting together this book. What was that experience like? It was mostly positive. You know, I, I think it was easier to set those up in Nebraska than it would be in a larger state. Even the politicians, I mean, they attack each other ferociously, but uh, <laughs> when you're setting up an interview, all their comms people were, were pretty friendly and, and, and it was pretty easy to find, you know, former U.S. senators and secretary of defense and stuff like that who, who would just get on the phone with you at the moment's notice. I actually find it more difficult to interview marketing people for my day job than I did <laughs> finding these people who like held the highest positions of power in Nebraska. Um, and most of them were pretty forthcoming. You know, some of them were very self-serving, but what do you expect when you're interviewing, you know, dozens of politicians, you're going to get some of that. <laughs> so I think it went about as good as it could have went. So you, um, you Ben Sass, am I saying it right? Ben Sass? Yep. Yeah. Um, a, a prominent uh, Nebraska Republican who has been pretty outspoken against Donald Trump on a number of levels. Did you have a chance to talk with him? Bill, you know, and I, I all the like current people like Sass and Fisher and Bacon, I, I messaged their comms people and um, some of them, I had a few back and forths before it went nowhere, but then with like Sass, I didn't even get a reply. So I interviewed a lot of state senators, but like as far as the U.S. senators, I was interviewing more like, Bob Kerry and Ben Nelson, uh, people who were in office, those who are in office now um, apparently spent their time doing other things. But uh, something I'll, I'll say about Sass though, is um, he, he, he does come out against Trump a lot, but when he actually has to vote, um, you might see a different story. Mm, okay. Now, Ben Nelson is from McCook, if memory serves. Yep, yep, that's correct. Now, back in 2014, I don't know whether you were aware of the uh, Great March for Climate Action, well, I'm, I'm not aware of that particular thing, but I, I, I'm aware of all the climate um, activism that was occurring, especially that around the Keystone Pipeline during right. that well, time. Well, this, this was an effort that I organized um, from Iowa, um, but involved people from all over the country. And there were a core of about 50 people who marched from California to Washington, D.C. And um, we crossed, we, went, we, we intentionally went through Nebraska because of the Keystone Pipeline and crossed where... We crossed at uh, York, Nebraska, roughly where Keystone, where the energy barn is. And um, even people who were staunch Republicans appreciated what we were doing. They brought us food. They, uh, there was one town, the entire town turned out. Well, it was a small town, 100 people, but they all turned out to meet us. High percentage of turnout. High, the highest turnout we had. We had, <laughs> we had 100% turnout in every town, man. <laughs> so, um, but, the, uh, but, but people there understood that uh, this, this Keystone Pipeline was a bad thing. And, and I, mean, now the, I mean, when Donald Trump came into office, he reauthorized the Keystone Pipeline. And Biden is now scheduled. Is, he committed to it early on. By the way, he also committed to closing down the Dakota Access Pipeline. We're going to hold him to that. And I, Didn't I, you have I, a spat with Biden about pipelines once? We had a lot of spats with Biden, but anyway, um, it, was, it was very productive spatting. So hopefully okay. uh, it'll lead to some good results. But, um, you know, 
how are people feeling? I, I mean, a lot of the, again, nearly all the Republicans we talked with back in 2014 were against the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, I'm sure yeah. there were some who were for it. And yet, I bet many of them voted for Trump. And now we have Biden, who most of them maybe didn't vote for, coming in and actually shutting down the pipeline that most of these folks didn't want. How, is, is that, how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I'd see it as one of those issues where they may um, support the, you know, like whether it's the Biden agenda or the Democratic agenda on that one issue, but still feel very bad that they have to have a Democratic president. Because I, I think those areas are still very much Trump supporting and they did not like that he lost the election. But on, you know, certain issues, they're willing to, to go the other direction. I mean, Nebraska passed Medicaid expansion as well and right. high to minimum wage. I mean, there, there's certain things like that. Um, I, I think, um, you know, in time, I think medical marijuana will be popular in Nebraska because it's just catching on everywhere else. Um, so that's maybe one silver lining of, well, they don't like Biden got elected, but maybe he'll shut down that pipeline that yeah. Uh, well, been and, protesting. And, you know, historically, Nebraska's had very strong anti-corporate farming law as well. And uh, yeah, going yeah way back to Brian, even William Brian. And, and of course, the most unique thing about Nebraska is the unicameral legislature. That is uh, that's like nothing else in the country. But, yeah, for those who are unfamiliar, we have the only nonpartisan single house legislature, and it allows people to get work done more efficiently because their names don't have to be attached to the ballots. But I, I get into it in my book that. Um, even that institution has been under threat in recent years since the deregulation of campaign finance. Mm, you know, it's it's right. become a lot more partisan, but still, it still functions in a unique way, but um, it's gotten a little away from the uh, intention of its framers. So final question for you, um, Ross. Uh, what, would, what would have to happen in Nebraska for the state to become more bipartisan, for rural Nebraska to be more like it used to be? Yeah, well, they need to start getting some wins. The Democrats do. They they've had a tough series. They've had a tough string of luck in the last decade. And maybe if they can flip the Omaha mayor seat and maybe the second congressional district the following year, they could build some momentum and get some stronger candidates to run and do you, get some more do you funding. Really, do you really think it's we could we could have a long conversation on this? Where we don't have time, but do you really think it's luck? I mean, I, I don't think no, I don't. I don't, I don't think luck. it's. I don't. I don't. Well, I guess luck was being nice. They've they've had a they've had a bad run lately due to a series of poor decisions, many yeah. of which are made at the national level too. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, true. You know, the pullout funding uh, to only be there when the race is being run, to not really run people statewide, but only in areas where they think they may have a chance to win, and that's had a terrible effect over time. Um, I was trying to be polite when I said luck. Well. And you were uh, overly <laughs> so. I think the Democrats have screwed up really, really badly and probably aren't trying to continue to do that unless something big changes. And There's it's the whole teams too. It's not, you know, it's, it's in Iowa, it's in Kansas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dakotas. Um, yeah. 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 Hey, so um, folks, I would highly recommend you take a look at uh, Ross Bennett's book, uh, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Uh, Ross, uh, how do people get a hold of your book? Uh, you can buy it on any website that sells books, Amazon. You could go straight to the University Press of Kansas or to Bookshop. I would tell you to go to your local store as well, but I don't know what's open during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and again, I'm not a fan of Amazon, so I'm going to say yeah, two of those three suggestions are great. Bookshop is good. Yep. And go straight <laughs> to the press and, uh, and you can buy it from indie websites as well. All right. Ross, thank you so much for joining us.
Thanks for having me on. Folks, when we come back, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to do our January garden question and answer. Yeah, I know. Talking about gardens in January? Believe me, there's a lot going on. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-built services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Fallon for Ed Fallon with you folks. Uh, happy winter again. I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm loving the snow we're getting in the upper Midwest. Maybe not everybody is. Hey, before we talk with Kathy Burns about, uh, well, about our January garden Q&A, I want to thank a couple of our local sponsors. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And their cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and dinner. And also on the weekends for breakfast. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Um... Okay, so people in January in northern climes aren't usually thinking, hey, what about gardening? But we are, and you should be too. <laughs> and here to tell you why is Kathy Burns. Because gardening is a year-round cycle. It's not a season. It's always gardening season, no matter what, what time of year where you live. People don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> no! Well, if you want to eat really well, and, and speaking of eating really well, didn't we eat well today? We had so much garden uh, we produce We well all today. the time, yeah. Just yeah. carrots, uh, cabbage, collards. Yeah, it was a sea day. <laughs> it was it was sea more vegetables day, and uh, and it was it was delicious. But we do like to scan through some of the Facebook pages that we're on with um, folks who are growing vegetables. And sometimes someone just posts a general question and people come in with answers. So we'd like to weigh in on some of that today. Ed, are you ready for Fire one away. of the garden yeah. questions that's burning on people's minds? Right. Okay. Somebody has asked, um, anyone know of tomato varieties that are resistant to disease and more specifically to verticillium fungal wilt. Verticillium wilt. And yeah. um, so th there was an answer on Facebook uh, about uh, making sure that you, and we agree with this, making sure that you water at the base, your tomatoes at the base, so you don't invite a lot of moisture up into the well, plant. The, the moisture will splash the uh, spores, the uh, mm -hmm. fungal spores up right. on the leaves. Yeah. And keeping the lower leaves trimmed uh, and just continuing to trim those and taking off any leaves that you see so that's a good response, and we have some experience with the wilt. Well, and the short answer is there. there I, I, I don't. I do not know of a single variety of tomato that is um, immune 
from fungal diseases. I mean, tomatoes have so many different things that can plague them. Mm-hmm. I think the key is to what you were saying, but also make sure you start your plants nice and strong. Uh, make sure you rotate them. Don't put them in the same place two years in a row. And when it comes to verticillium wilt or fusarium wilt, yeah, those are tough ones. Uh, you just have to kind of get it out of the soil as best you can. Uh, we had a patch um, of cabbage last year in a new mm-hmm. bed that we did not know was infested with that with wilt, and it wiped out the whole crop. Oh, we put the cabbage in, and it was, oh, they so quickly just met their demise. <laughs> well, it took them a little while, but once they went, they went fast, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing we tried, though, we, we, we solarized two mm-hmm. plots, meaning we put um, plastic over it, mm-hmm. and um, we, we did so when it got to be really, really hot, and the, the goal is to bake the bad stuff out of there. You kill some of the good stuff too, but if you can get rid of the uh, the verticillium wilt, then your plants might have a you know a, a, a fighting chance next year. Yep, yep. Um, what are the best grow lights out there? We have a pretty simple answer to that. Cheap ones. We use <laughs> <laughs> we use shop lamps, the kinds that that have the hood at the top, and then you put a couple of long fluorescent bulbs into them, and uh, we always just just do fine with that. It um, some people are saying, don't use the LEDs because they don't have the spectrum of light. But mm. you can um, you can buy LEDs, although they're more expensive. However, they're more earth friendly. Yeah. You, you know, can I, buy them that are full spectrum. I years ago I would pay what twenty bucks for a shop lamp, and one one day when I had a little money to spend, I thought I'm going to get fancy and drop. Almost a hundred bucks. Wait, 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 wait! You got fancy. I one got time? fancy ones. Woo. Yeah, it, it, it's a memorable event, <laughs> and, and I, I spent um, clo- over ninety dollars on a lamp. When was this? Back in the nineties, somewhere. This is really interesting. Yeah, and yeah, and you know what? It was no better than the twenty dollars shop lamps. So the trick is to use the lamps properly. If you buy the shop lamps like we do, get the ones with the widest hood that you can find, um, because they can distribute the light more evenly across your vegetable mm. trays. And be sure to keep that light an inch or two above the tops as close of the as seedlings, possible to the, uh, so seeds, that yes. they're not trying to stretch out and grow. And we don't uh, uh, we don't necessarily change our bulbs every year. I mean, some people say you need to, but we use the same bulbs three, mm-hmm. four, even five years in a row, with no detriment. So the last question I think we have time for probably is an easy one. When do you normally start your seeds? <laughs> it depends <laughs> on w- the seed. I want to read somebody's answer on this page, and and I thought I thought it was a little bit off key is it says um i think it's uh he said every year there are pictures submitted of overly excited gardeners planting seeds in january and february and every april there are photos of the same eager beavers with spindly yellowing anemic plants crowding each other in tiny trays squeezed under two small grow lights so yes go for it i think that was a little sarcastic i think uh, that should be made into a poem but but no yeah i mean (laughs) we we start our artichokes in november we start our leeks and onions now Tomorrow, in fact, <laughs> this week, and we'll probably start our brassicas, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, uh, early February, and then start peppers and um, eggplant mid February. But we won't start tomatoes until mid March. So it's it really depends. It, I mean, yeah, you don't want your plants to be leggy, but you no. Know, anyway, <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us, Kathy, and thanks to our audience. Thanks to our other guests, Joel Brown, uh, David Drake, Maureen McHugh. Mark Klipsham and Ross Benich. And thanks to the Fallon Forum production team of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. And you can check out this program on Facebook, on 
our podcast and also on various stations. Again, thanks for joining us. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.